Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Great to see all of you people here at, in the building. I mean, we have a vast crowd here. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, not quite true, but anyway. And all of you people at home, nice to have you tuning in. I just have a few announcements today. First off, the um, senior pastor announced that we would be collecting clothes for children of immigrants next Sunday. So if you have any clothes uh, that you're not, no longer using, your children are not, not using, your grandchildren are not using, would you please bring them next Sunday and there will be, be a place to deposit them at the church. Also, um, we're still collecting donations, whether here in person at our brass plate at the front of the hall or at home, the, the donate button is still available for you on the website, the St. Paul's website. And lastly, I just wanted to thank the ordinary women who came to support the food pantry distribution effort at Boynton Memorial Church yesterday. Uh, Frida Hale is our able leader in coordinating that effort. Pam Poole came, Jeanette Zercher. Uh, we had an ordinary man come too, Wayne Herbert, standing back there. And, and I also, we uh, went to the food pantry and supported their effort. Uh, I wanted to give you just a minute backstory on that. Uh, this is how it kind of unfolds. At 8.30, we all arrive and prepare the food packets and the boxes. And about 10 o'clock, the people come to get the food. They stream in from between 10 and 12. Over that two-hour period, we have about maybe 50 people come to get food. Yeah, and... Um, you know, I don't know their background. I don't know if they come from supportive families or broken homes. I don't know if they had good education or poor schools. I don't know if they're homeless, out of work, uh, struggling at their jobs. I don't know any of that. But what I do know from being there and watching them is that they need this food. This food, and this church, this Boynton Church, is a lifesaver for them. The food pantry is so necessary. And um, it's a very humbling experience to participate in that. And on that note, I am done, and we'll turn it over to these two wonderful people. Except you're more wonderful than I am. We already know that. <laughs> so I missed teaching with you the last two Sundays. I'm glad you're back. No. You feel okay? Yeah. I will say that um, there's some lingering things. I can't smell. And uh, so if you forgot deodorant, feel free to sit over here um, <laughs> on my side. <laughs> um, I can't smell you. Um, you know, but I also, you know, my husband and I are both vaccinated and we both got COVID. So we're going back to wearing masks and the places where we were feeling comfortable not wearing them. Yeah, I kind of implicitly said in the preview that went out, take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't feel comfortable coming today, I certainly understand that. And I should say I'm, I'm not, I'm, I no longer have COVID. I wouldn't be here if I did. So just to kind of clear up any like, what is she so, doing here? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Um, <laughs> The, uh, both uh, Jeff McDonald and other uh, medical professionals that I've talked to this week are very disheartened and discouraged about the work that they're doing. 
because so many people who are ending up in the hospital could have avoided being there. And um, so it's, it's a scary time. Anyway, thank you for uh, Tim Leatherwood and William Bodge and Olivia Watson and John Watson for helping us out do this. And as always, we dedicate this time to our growing understanding and acceptance of who we truly are. Um, our growing in our understanding and awareness of who our neighbor is and learning how to love them as if they were us because they are and also growing in our skill in relating to the mystery that not only contains all that is and all who are but is a part of everything that is. There's nothing where this sacred mystery is not. So no matter where you, who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. So I want to begin today by saying a word about what's coming next uh, as far as content is concerned. I think that we can finish what we want to say about this parable in the next two weeks. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Maybe in one. Including today. One or two, one to three, yeah. <laughs> including today. Um, so the, the, the church's education program is always has a fresh start in the fall, and that's two weeks from now on the 22nd. And um, what we're going to undertake. Yeah, that's only one week. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll do the math later. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're going to undertake an in-depth look at a document called the Gospel of John. I have several reasons for wanting to do this. I always work better when I have a plan. I'm a seven on the Enneagram and sevens are into what's called ego planning, which is not a very good term. I don't like it applied to me, but uh, I always work better if I have a plan. And second, I've really never uh, taught out of the Gospel of John. I've certainly preached sermons uh, based on passages in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John is the most misunderstood and abused writing in the Christian collection. And it has often been used to make Christianity into an exclusive and into a superior religion. It was never intended by its writers, if you want to use plural, to be so used. So one of the reasons that I wanted us to teach from the parables the last several Sundays is because the Gospel of John is one long parable. And uh, we're going to call this series Reimagining Our Sacred Story, A Place to Come From, Not a Place to Get To. So um, if you want to get and read two of the primary sources that we're going to be using, though we will refer to others, I want to introduce them to you now so that those of you who wish to do so can get them. The first is John Shelby Spong's book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Spong argues that the Gospel of John had as many as four writers. Mm -hmm. And that the Gospel was misinterpreted by the framers of the fourth century creeds to be a literal account of the life of Jesus when in fact it is a literary, interpretive, parabolic retelling of the events in Jesus' life through the medium of, now get this, fictional characters, mm -hmm. 
Nicodemus, Lazarus. So this is not your grandmother's take on the Gospel of John. Um, the other book that we will be looking at is uh, Mystical Christianity, a psychological commentary on the Gospel of John by John Sanford. So uh, don't let the title of this book scare you. Rebecca, are you familiar with John Sanford? He wrote about 20 books. Uh, you can look him up on Wikipedia. He was. As many Union people are, they have a life somewhere in, a foot somewhere in the realm of religion and spirituality. And then uh, early in the 70s, uh, he didn't leave the priesthood, but he went in full-time private practice as a Union analyst. And he's had a profound impact through his writings on me. I never met him. But um, I studied him a lot, studied his writings a lot. And this, um, this book is not available on Kindle. The um, Spong book you can get on Kindle. Um, you can get a paperback copy of it or you can get it in uh, secondhand sources. But I just wanted to give you a heads up about coming attraction. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about the Sanford book is and his footnotes is one of uh, my favorite writers, Edward Edinger, who is also a union and very spiritual. And so there's some great footnotes if you desire a deeper dive. And I find Edinger very, very readable as well. But I, I keep calling this the, the John Healing Project, in part because I think if any of us have come up in a Christian context, and even if we haven't come up in a Christian household, most of, most of us have been influenced by a Christian context, just given where we live. and move and have our being. And John, as Bill said, has been used, I think, abusively to sort of make this very exclusive club. If you don't believe this, then you're not a real Christian. And we can all imagine the signs at football games that say John 3.16, that that's sort of like, that if, for whosoever believeth in him shall have life everlasting. It's just, anyway, so, so our job, I think, is to, to heal John, or heal from John, maybe. <laughs> And already, just as we do our reading, I'm seeing it in new ways and doing some side research about feminist and liberatory interpretations of John. And liberation theology, I think, is Jesus's theology. So it, it, it may be, in my opinion, more true. Um, but I think I'm looking for ways to kind of decolonize my own imagination about how scripture has been used and abused to continue to benefit the powerful. And we know that Jesus did not keep company with the powerful, that he challenged the powerful. And I love the retellings of scripture through the lens of the historically dispossessed, the poor, the disenfranchised. And the main thing I'm learning about John is that we do it a disservice by taking it literally. And the same can also be said about the prodigal son. We're trying not to take this story literally, although it can be a literal story about a wealthy father who parented two really different and somewhat difficult sons. But it's also true because it's bigger than that context. And I think that's what we're going to try to do with John. So give you a heads up. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Get a good readable translation of um, the New Testament. Um, I like Peterson, but there are others that you can use. So last week, we I stopped, we stopped in uh, our reflections on the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons, where the younger son in the story 
has, uh, as it's quaintly put, comes to himself. And he decides to go home, and I'm going to line out the text of the next part of the story, and then we'll see its relevant applications for us right here in the here and now for this very divided, divisive, ailing world in which we live. So I want to reiterate that this is the most famous, the best loved, most influential of all the parables we have from Jesus. It's uh, been called the most beautiful short story ever told. Brandon Scott, in his commentary on the parables, says, quote, this parable exceeds the grasp of any interpretation. Also, our undertaking to do exposition and application of this or any parable runs counter to the nature parable. So I want you to know that we know that. I know that. Because exposition seeks to contain and explain and application seeks to make explicit what should be left to the hearer to intuit for yourself. That's what Jesus did. He told the story and didn't do any amplification of it whatsoever. So we're substituting for parable that which is not parable. <laughs> this is like trying to explain a joke punchline. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, anyway, I'm, I, boy, I was tempted to step into that. Okay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> While he was, this is Brandon Scott's translation, by the way. While he was way far off, his father saw him and had pity, and running, he fell upon his neck and kissed him, passionate, uh, kissed him affectionately. Now, in Jewish stories, both in the Hebrew Scripture and in the stories Jesus told, distance is uh, an indication of failure or success, separation or restoration. You know, a, a vineyard owner goes away on a trip. All that distance makes is its own metaphor. So the father is the one in this story who bridges the gap. The father runs out of the house to greet his son. And then this, li this line lets us know immediately that the son is going to be forgiven and that the son is going to be restored. However, the, the father's behavior is way out of line for someone of his station. He goes overboard, violating his honor his status, uh, Jewish law, his affectionate behavior strikes a maternal theme. I know that Holly doesn't think it strikes it hard enough, but um, you notice that the father doesn't test the son's sincerity. Henri Nouwen has written a book on spiritual direction. This is not in his book on, on, this on the painting. And he says that when he first looked at the painting, in St. Petersburg, he imagined the father to be saying, I will ask you no questions. No matter where you have been or what you have done, you are my beloved and I accept you. So the father does not follow the prescribed rules or roles expected or required of him. Rather, he plays this very nurturing and nourishing role. Said the son to him, Father, I have sinned to heaven and before you. No longer am I worthy to be called your son. So the son has already written this term of restoration as a hired hand, but he's cut off in mid-sentence. The father is back in control. 
the son is the object of his affection. Said the father to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and clothe him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill and eating, let us make merry because this my son was dead and lives again, was lost and is found and they began to make merry. The best robe was that of the fathers, which places the son and the father on the same level. The ring that the father gives the son gives the son power and status. The sandals that the father gives the son means that the son is superior to the slaves. So the father is not just restoring the son within the honor system, the belonging system, He's elevating the son to his own status. The son has been dead since he requested the division of the property. It was a death wish for the father. In the famine, he faced death. In a foreign country attached to a foreigner, he was lost. And that's where we're going to stop this part of the story. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that the absence of the feminine in biblical text frustrates me. <laughs> this story is no different in that the characters are all male, a father, two sons. So in some ways it'd be easy for me to just throw this one across the room too and give it up. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't throw it across the room, I mean. I just kind of had to take a deep breath and lean in and try and see it in the context for which it was given. Prior to the Jesus movement and even since, society has taken a deep patriarchal turn. We might only just be coming out of it, and I think we're waiting to see if that's the case. The feminine is associated with the body, passion, and emotion, whereas the masculine is associated with the mind, logic, and intellect. There's absolutely no problem with any of these attributes, but we've come to value the mind over the heart instead of the mind and the heart. Some of our greatest Greek thinkers, even, foundations of Christian thought, Plato, Hippocrates, Aristotle, set the intellectual groundwork for sexism. They had only male students, and their writings often rationalized particularly violent forms of misogyny. Plato suggests in his writing Timaeus, his mythic account of how the world might have been created, the narrator spins a tale according to which the gods first created men and then punished those who lived out of cowardice or injustice by turning them into women. So, that's the, and again, it is sometimes even Jesus is related to Plato in his thinking, but Jesus does something more radical than that. And Plato's student Aristotle said, women are just unfinished men. One of our greatest thinkers, y'all. <laughs> we got to challenge this stuff. Women have been conditioned to think this way about themselves, too. When Raphael, the great Renaissance artist, painted the School of Athens, he included Hypatia. You can see where she would have been. One of the first known female mathematicians, philosophers, and astronomers. Upon seeing it, the bishop, who had to approve all commissioned artwork, artwork was usually commissioned by the church paid for by a wealthy donor. So the approval of it was in the hands of the church. Supposedly, the bishop said, remove her. Knowledge of her runs counter to the belief of the faithful. Otherwise, the work is acceptable. 
So Raphael disguises her. Either it's said that maybe it's his patron, who was a female, or the young effeminate nephew of the pope. We're not sure which. He doesn't say. In religious life, males were students of scripture and tradition, whereas females were often in deference to those students, cleaners, housekeepers, servants. This was the context in which Jesus taught, too. Women were not in the, in the, in the forefront. Although some of his first followers were women, and we'll see that even more as we get into John, I realized that Jesus would have completely lost his audience if he came in talking about how women needed more respect and equal position in this new world vision of his. He probably showed by example, but the world around him would need time to catch up. So Jesus does this other radical thing. He tells the story of a father who is compassionate, caring, maternal, and of a young son who is vulnerable, weakened, almost like a newborn, kneeling just before the space where the womb would be in the painting by Rembrandt. He introduces this whole new way of being male. We mentioned a few weeks ago that Rembrandt's image of the father is both masculine and feminine, as represented by the hands. One is strong and square, the other is slender and soft. So these particular traits of the father help us to relate, relate to God as a non-gendered being, as a different way not only of experiencing God, but also the self. Some of the observable characteristics that Nowen writes about in this parable are grace, forgiveness, and generosity. Nowen's return of the prodigal son, which we've talked about a little bit in here, is both personal and very vulnerable and emotionally rich. But his image of God seems to be still kind of a personal, out there, kind of celestial being kind of God that saves and protects. Would you agree, Bill? Mm -hmm. Yeah. His kingdom, and I could be wrong, but he talks kingdom of God somewhat more literally than metaphorically. And it's interesting, I think, because I think we both pretty strongly diverge from now and in that place, but reading John Shelby Spong, the book, The Fourth Gospel, alongside Nowen has helped me really articulate what I want to say about that. A kingdom, and talking about it as such, implies a place, a structure. But the actual word that Jesus may have used was probably closer to realm. And a realm is more like an idea and a different level of consciousness. This story, then, is about inhabiting different levels of consciousness that are consistently changing and evolving. As we're growing, we don't return to the same level of consciousness from which we came. If we do, we stay young. We stay a child. Um, there, there is a point in Nowen where he talks about the danger of returning to the infancy stage, to be born again and again and again. If we constantly return to that childlike stage and rely upon that paternalistic external other to save us, we never fully grow up. Ideally, and I think of this like, we can grow in a closed circle and kind of keep returning to the same points, or we can grow in an expanding spiral. And when we are in growth and growing in new levels of consciousness, it's more like a spiral. So I think the opportunity of this parable is to see both potentially and actually the life stages that are in each of us, the ones we go through as we grow. And each new stage is kind of like rebirth. 
There's a poem in Eckhart's Book of Secrets, another one that we've talked about and recommended in here, that is a perfect illustration of this. It's called, What is the Highest Work of God? It is simply this, giving birth. Imagine this then. God will not rest until this birth happens in you. So don't get busy trying to make something happen. Relax. Let go of your need to make something happen. And open yourself to this birth. The rest will come of itself. The question that I landed with was, what is being birthed in us as we come into our truest nature? Our capacity here for symbolic thinking allows us to be born again through transformation. Yeah. So, um, did you want to advance that? Mm, That's me. That's you. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the one of the things that Dermot Amiraku has convinced me of is that very likely Jesus didn't use the word kingdom at all, mm-hmm. and the word that uses realm, he uses as community. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we're calling this upcoming ser- series a place to come from is because the kingdom, a realm of reality that Jesus talks about, is generally presented to people as a place to get to. Either after you die, or by the way that you have certain, have embraced certain doctrines and beliefs, you come to the kingdom. And what Jesus clearly teaches is that kingdom teachings are places you come from come from a place of compassion, come from a place of integrity, come from that. Now, I can't pl- prove what I'm about to say, but that won't keep me from saying it. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that people shy away from a spiritual practice is not because they have no time for it or don't, have, have, uh, don't know how to do it. It's because... They fear encountering what they have spent years denying, resisting, or burying. Now, I do not know why I'm saying that to any of you, because I know each and every one of you has a very deep, profound, daily spiritual practice. So just forget what I said, okay? Most of the time, at least during our waking hours, We're preoccupied with trying to be a certain kind of person, having a certain kind of life, or at least appearing to do so. Yet everybody in this room knows that under the surface, there's something else going on entirely. That which we are sure we truly are and which we spend so much time defending in so many ways is not only not permanent, but it's so elusive that it might be said not really to exist. That's right. You just heard that correctly. (laughs) Who we think we are, at least most of us, most of the time think this, in many ways does not ever truly exist. I had a a client say to me one time, masquerading as a normal person is exhausting. (laughs) This is why the younger brother's experience of coming to himself is for us 
not a one-time experience, at least it's not for me. And I've been at this work for a long time now. I am forever falling for the lies that I'm not only a separate self, but that I'm permanent. So when we fall into ignorance of our interconnectedness with everyone and everything, when we fall into thinking, well, this is, this is me, and think that things like ourselves are permanent, then we cause and we experience suffering. We're in the far country. We're dead to life as it is. So again, what is the essence of spiritual practice? It's the ongoing, ever-enlarging capacity of the heart to be with what is. The ongoing, ever-enlarging capacity of the heart to be with what is. The Buddhists call this right view or right perception. And wrong perceptions are the ground of all suffering. Wrong perceptions lead to fear, anger, discrimination, despair. And yet, as we'll talk about next Sunday, we're caught in these emotions most of the time. Maybe this is just me, but wrong perceptions have a grasp on us. It gets worse because depending on your point of view, um, at least it gets worse depending on your, your point of view, because in a, in, in a way, all views are wrong views. <laughs> and knowing this, I think, can be very liberating or terrifying, depending on your point of view. Here's a candle. I'm going to cause a flame to manifest on this candle. I got this language from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, I'm going to invite the bell to ring. <laughs> I'm going to cause a flame to manifest on this candle. Now, question. Where was the flame before it got on the candle? And this flame is not the same flame from one millisecond to the next. That's true of you, too, mm -hmm. and me. I am not the same person that started teaching this class today. We're changing all the time. Nor am I different, either, really. This is, I think, an experiential concept that is available only to us when we can step into non-duality. This is just one of the reasons that having a daily spiritual practice is so essential. To know this and to have this experience. A, a, a daily spiritual practice is not time out from life. A daily spiritual practice is training for life. But not just any life. It's been training for this life right, right there. <laughs> Because it's when we are at our spiritual practice that we have a chance to run into our true selves. There's always more to us than we know. And I can tell you as someone trained to do psychological counseling and trained to do spiritual direction, and as I look in my own heart, it seems that many people remain a mystery to themselves. 
And I do know that it is the people who assure us, and they most make the news in ways of being politicians, and they most show up as doofuses from Tennessee or Texas. <laughs> that the people who assure us that they know who they are and that they are right about what they do and clear in the motivation of their behaviors, who are not only the most wrong about all three of those things, but are also the source of much misery for themselves and other people. We are like this candle flame. We think we're something discreet and concrete, and we're not. But when you go searching for your true self, you're going to find it's more like this than like this. Now, here's the bad news. This candle is what we think we really are most of the time, right? But if you notice this candle, we're, we're all, I heard Jim Finley say this one time, we're all like um, candles in an old folks' home. It's lost its air conditioning. We're just <laughs> melting away. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> Gotta be the old folks' home. <laughs> um, we're in the old folks' home. This yeah. is it. We're all aging as we sit here like mm -hmm. melting candles. I have a, a colleague who is a true expert in the Enneagram. He, he's spent his whole life studying and using, he's a business consultant, using the Enneagram uh, as a growth tool. And he told me just this week, he said, that in his experience, most people spend much of their waking time in some form of self-judgment. Mm. I'm not good enough. What does he think of me? What does she think of me? Do I measure up? All that thing. Yeah. So ultimately, learning to love ourselves as the Father loves the Son is part of this parable too. I think there's a lot of hope in that, but I don't mean the kind of flimsy hope like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today as the thunder's rolling in, we want to go fishing, whatever, <laughs> but a kind of hope that's born of grief, of having been through something. This kind of hope has a deep impact on our psyche and on our ability to be more compassionate and inclusive. When we have been through something, we tend to understand the suffering of others more. And leaning into that grief, not cowering from it, not denying it, helps shape us both as individuals and as a community. Our grief is always more tolerable, for example, when we have a beloved community to return to, a community of belonging. And the Father in this parable represents that community of belonging. I'm going to read another poem, and this one is from the perspective of the mother, who is overtly missing from this story, but is perhaps more subtly implied. It's called, The Prodigal's Mother Speaks to God, by Allison Funk. When he returned a second time, the straps of his sandals broken, his robe stained with wine, it was not as easy to forgive. By then his father was long gone himself, leaving me with my other son, the sullen one, whose anger is the instrument he tunes from good morning on. I know there is no room for a man in the womb, but when I saw my youngest coming from far off, so small he seemed, a kid unsteady on its legs, she go, what will you do, I thought, remembering when he learned to walk.
If you're a parent of grown kids or little kids, you know that your kids can break your hearts. They push against our boundaries and sometimes our values in really painful ways. And they can seem like aliens living in our field. <laughs> I don't minimize the particular harms done between parents and children. And that can be deeply wounding. Most of us end up in therapy because of those harms. But our job is not to place our children or ourselves on the path we think they need to be on, but to support them in the, pa in the path that they need to pave for themselves. We humans fall off that path for so many reasons, but what the father shows us here in the poem from the perspective of the mother is that the opening is always available in spite of grief and pain. If we commit ourselves to growing up, we must never forget that that vulnerable child lives inside of us. This tenderness is one that we need to hold for ourselves as well as for anyone we love. There is always the vulnerable child. It's always there. But so is the wise father. So the potential to grow into the wise father is also there. This is what I imagine gives the prodigal son hope in this story. The real possibility that as he looks into his father's eyes, as he's welcomed home, that he will be okay, that he can see himself as a grown-up. And he can, too, become the compassionate father. I think holding space for this inner child to arrive is probably one of the greatest things we can do for ourselves as well as for those we love. This is a story about self-acceptance as much it is, as it is about unconditional love from the other, to, live, to love ourselves and each other beyond what is rational. It's not rational to love someone this much, to just say, I ask no questions, but you're welcome here. But that's exactly what we need to do to create this sort of beloved community. There's a concept in Buddhism called non-attachment. Often we mistake that to mean that we should remain cool or aloof or indifferent with the people, oops, I forgot to move on, sorry about that, the, with the people we love. I want to try and paint it this way. Non-attachment does not mean caring less, nor does it mean withholding love. If we're attached, if we're gripped to something, we often have a particular outcome in mind. Like, my child will be a lawyer, right? <laughs> or a way of seeing things so that it makes us look good. It represents egoic desires. If I'm attached, I can become anxious when things don't go the way I want them to. I become controlling and dogmatic, as well as fearful of losing that which, to which I am clinging. That never happens to me as a mother, ever. Uh, <laughs> attachment can also foster codependency. If, you don't, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. If you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm not okay. So we get gripped. Contrast attachment with commitment. If I am committed, I'm in for the journey, not necessarily for the destination. I'm committed to the well-being and holding space for the livelihood for those that I love without becoming attached to particular outcomes. In that picture, I kind of picture it like standing in the stream with your feet planted, regardless of the rushing water around you, without trying to control or direct the motion of the stream. You're just planted there, letting that stream kind of flow around you. It's a fine line to walk as a parent. For sure I'm learning this. I'm sure many of you in here who are older than I am and have grown children have learned that the hard way. 
And so many nights, I certainly lie in bed and get gripped by fear. How did I mess up my kids today? What did I put them in therapy for today? But, <laughs> but here's the deal. To grow wise in my spirit, I have to also have this same sense of grace and commitment with myself, this sort of forgiveness. I love Buddhist psychologist Tara Brock's offering when she's in the throes of fear thinking. She says she pauses, takes a breath, puts her hand over her heart, and says, may this too serve awakening. She interrupts the fear. Sometimes when my kids reduce me to a smoldering heap of ashes, which is to say anger, <laughs> I have to just say, hold on, I'm reminding myself that I love you. <laughs> so that one who places her hand over her heart, or at least tries, or steady on the son's shoulders, even when he's done the worst thing, without wavering, whispers to her own inner child too, you will be okay. This too shall pass. This person is one who has known grief and loss and also redemption and joy. She has begun to come to her true self. I think of this like joy begets more joy. Compassion creates more compassion. It's the law of attraction, right? What, as our energy follows our attention, what we are attentive to becomes our reality. And as we're able to incorporate that reality into wisdom, as we incorporate loss into individuation or into growing up, our overall energy shifts in that direction too. Energy follows attention. As, as that shift keeps growing and going, we become a grown-up. And I think we're constantly growing up. You find even at 83, you're still growing up, mm -hmm. sometimes. <laughs> But if we're challenged to see this parable as making one out of three, in other words, if we're challenged to see ourselves in each representative of this parable, the father, the young son, and the middle son, so it can be more than a way of seeing the self. It's also a way of seeing God. And the question it, uh, I think allows us to ask is, what do I believe about this God that I say I believe in? Is, it what, I, is what I want to believe different than what I've been taught? And what needs healing? I learned recently, there's this lovely little book by Padre Gotuma, who's an Irish poet and writer. And I'm reading his book called In the Shelter, and it's really his, his kind of spiritual life journey. Um, he, he writes about this Irish word called skag. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. But it, the word means both shadow and shelter. There's a saying with this word in it that can, I cannot justifiably say in Irish. I'm not even going to try. But it essentially translates in English to, it is in the shelter of people that we live, or it is in the shadow of each other that people live. So I think the question that we get to ask about God and ourselves is, are we a shelter or are we a looming shadow? Sometimes we're both. For some people, the home that they have to come back to is not a shelter. It is more like a, shelter, a shadow. So it may be difficult to imagine that God is a, a shelter. I can't, my words are getting confused here. Shelter, shadow, say that 10 times fast. Um, anyways, if, if we don't have home as a place of shelter, imagining God as such becomes difficult. I just watched this documentary on Netflix called Pray Away. Has anyone seen it? 
it's devastating, it's heartbreaking. And it's about a movement called Exodus, which promised parents and ashamed individuals that the gay could be prayed away. This is still a very active movement. This wasn't like 40 years ago before we had you know, much more vocal activism in the LGBTQIA inclusion group, but it's alive today in Texas. Like Dallas is a big, huge place where this Exodus movement is existing and alive and well. This documentary featured mostly people who had left the movement, who had been leaders or who had been part of it, but who came awake to their true natures and are now living an openly gay life, but they were hijacked for a long time with, about themselves, with limiting beliefs about themselves and about God. One of the young women featured is on this journey back to God. She was... Um, I want to say like an evangelist for this movement. She, she knew she had homosexual feelings, but she was taught that those were an abomination. So she was then teaching within this church movement about how to transcend those feelings. So she's coming back to herself in a way. This, one of the central questions of this parable then is can we believe in a radically inclusive God her, the last scene with this young woman shows her getting married to her now wife and how she is now leading groups saying, there's room for us here. The God that I want to believe in says that we all belong. And so she's trying to renew this language in a way that can heal what she was brought up to believe. And I think that that's a good question for a community too, is that can we be a community that creates spaces of belonging and healing can we deal honestly with our history that has so often been exclusive and still imagine that there's a healed space of love that we can co-create? I'm a mother of three, you guys know that, and when I had my first son, I thought, and maybe many of you can relate to this, I thought it would be impossible to ever feel this amount of instant, overwhelming love ever again. Just stop at one because I'll never feel this way again. It wasn't impossible. They just say that mothers and fathers grow a new heart, that we have as many hearts as we need to love all of our children. And each heart has a slightly different function or rhythm because each child needs to be loved differently. And we figure that out as we grow into parenting, how to love our children the way they need to be loved as opposed to the way we think they need to be loved. True love is always this way. It's expansive, like a spiral, as I mentioned. It's never restrictive, and it's like the water that inhabits the container that it's given. I was thinking about octopuses. I know this is sort of a jump, but <laughs> octopi, octopuses, okay, um, have three hearts, and each of their hearts serves a different life-giving function in their body receiving the oxygen, letting go of the, you know, it. They're cold-blooded animals, so they constantly are converting what, the environment into air that they can breathe. They also have eight brains in each of their legs, or arms, arms and legs. Um, and in their, each of their tentacles is like its own brain. And so it's this thinking, feeling, constantly growing thing. Uh, we've, has anyone in this room seen my octopus teacher? God, it's beautiful. It is. It is like a spiritual event it's watching. On, it's on this. Netflix. 
It is my teacher, the octopus. Isn't that it? Or my is octopus teacher. My octopus yeah. teacher. Um, it's just, it. Yeah, it's just beautiful. You will never imagine that you can cry about an octopus. But you will. <laughs> it's a great story. It is. That's a beautiful story. And, and I was thinking about that story. And I kind of think that this is how I imagine the ground of being, sacred mystery, God, whatever name for that that we have. I would love an octopus god, one with enough hearts to eat for each of the functions it needs to serve, and with enough brains to love each of us the way we need to be loved. I think we can grow our hearts and our minds in that way, too. So when you ask, uh, as we were preparing for this today, um, if I'd seen um, Pray Away, I have not, but I did see the film Boy Erased. Mm. If some of you have seen that. Seen Same thing. There are a lot of films out there. If you Google um, films on conversion therapy, yeah. for homosexual conversion therapy, and I, I told Holly that this issue got settled for me in the first quarter of my clinical training in 1966. When, um, now this is a long time ago. And you can imagine that we were in a different culture in 1966, right. about all of this mm. stuff, right? And I had a very wise psychiatrist supervisor in that uh, group who just said, um, can any of you imagine waking up in the morning and deciding to be gay? I said, no. And he said, nobody else does either. And that settled it for me. That was it. Um, that the whole matter of freedom of choice and identity, and I've seen as a therapist over the years the painful struggle that particularly men have had to go through in coming out and feeling accepted, and it's just, it's just has been so painful. Well, the, one of the theories is that our sexuality is born of trauma, but which is not true. We, we express our sexuality sometimes through our trauma. I don't mean our preferences. But the way that we are closed or not closed, the way that we are timid or not timid in expressing ourselves may be influenced by trauma. But, the, but our sexual nature is not based on trauma. And this whole exodus movement preys on trauma as the cause of sexual preference. And um, again, just drawing on my personal experience as a, as a therapist, back in the 70s and early 80s, a number of men who were gay felt that if they got married, they'd be protected, mm -hmm. and they'd be protected from AIDS. And so they fled into marriage, they had children, and then they're left with this huge struggle of personal identity and sexual identity. You ask if I was still growing at 83. <laughs> and <clears throat> I'll tell you an answer. I believe that once we have met the survival issues, that's our chief obligation in life is to grow, to continue to grow. And my intention is to do that and also to die as a very young child. <laughs> right? Benjamin Button. Because Jesus said, you've got to have that mindset of a child to inhabit this realm. So it's a good paradox to do. So the, this deep understanding, this this deep understanding of self-worth that I mentioned, I believe comes from 
finding our identity in the mystery that contains, is in, and is all that is. In the past, I've said it this way, you are who you are in God, no more, no less. But the word God has become so problematic for me um, because I think people have an image of God that's more damaging than helpful. Um, almost all the religion most of us know and have been exposed to is a religion that's been created by white men of power. White male patriarchy is not working. And the religion created by white male patriarchy is not working either. We were on a tour of the Lake District in northern Italy a few years ago. We had a wonderful guide. And I always am so reluctant when I'm in another group to tell people what I do because it just gets so, it, it ruins, first of all, it ruins hearing any good jokes. Um, and, and it shuts people down. It just, you know, if I identify myself as a clergyman or as a psychologist, either one, it just, you know, I have a friend who, yeah. and there you are, friend. Yeah. Anyway, this guide said, she'd ferreted out what I did on the trip. And we had a lot of fun with each other, teasing each other back and forth. And one day she said to me, I'm going to take you someplace where you can see a picture of God. <laughs> so she took us to this grotto where, because of the atmospheric conditions, a painting had been preserved for centuries. A painting of God. <laughs> this is the white man's depiction of the Santa Claus God. So our God image is in a serious need of a serious makeover. Jackie Lewis, Dr., the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, whom we had uh, here with us in a webinar, and I had hoped that we might be able to get her in person, but now that the variant is kicking back up, <clears throat> that's off the table for the moment. Dr. Lewis writes, my God is a curvy black woman with dreadlocks and dark cocoa brown skin. She laughs from her belly and is unashamed to cry. Holly got this for me. She can rock a whole world to sleep, singing in her contralto voice. Her sighs breathe life into humanity. Her heartbreaks cause eruptions of justice and peace. And she goes on to say that because God is a mystery, we don't know everything about her. So out of our imaginations and our yearnings, our hopes and our fears, we make stuff up. Now, at our best, we project onto God goodness, power, kindness, and love. But our worst, we create a God who's punitive, angry, judgmental, harsh, and we do that because we are these things. And we do what we do in projections because we want to stay safe. And it's not the, that projections are a problem. Projection and transference is the way we automatically get around on the planet. The problem occurs when we're unaware that what we're doing is projecting, when we're not suspicious of our projections. 
Because when this happens, we neglect to admit that we created the God who gave us the Crusades, the doctrine of discovery, that gave us murder of indigenous people, put Jews in, in ghettos and enslaved African Americans, the God who doesn't embrace immigrants and who hates gays and lesbians. So our God image needs a makeover. And this is one of the primary things that Jesus was committed to do. The single worst thing, in my opinion, done in the name of Jesus was to create a religion that convinced people that it was Jesus' job to change God's mind about us. Hmm. Wrong. It was Jesus' task to change our minds about God. This story of the compassionate father and his two lost sons can change our image of God if we let it work on us, if we take it in, if we enter it. In his life and his teachings, Jesus offers people unconditional positive regard. He pays attention to people. He's compassionate. He respects people. He looks past what society and even they say defines them to their true self. That's the way he healed people. I don't see what you think defines you. I see you as you truly are. Now get up and walk and go tell the priest you're okay. <laughs> that's, that's healing for people. To wake up and experience our true self as a whole person and in no way being deficient. Jesus also explains over and over in both word and deed that each person is a child of God. He says that all people who claim this awareness are safe in love. Not protected in the world, but sustained no matter what. And the Jesus thing, though, that Jesus does is gathered people into groups, and he charged them with doing the same things he does. Loving people, awakening their sense of true selfhood. In this community... All people are both absolutely equal and absolutely unique, both at the same time. This community becomes the new image of God in the world. So let's recognize this as the truth about who we are, the truth about who others are. Let's recognize this as the work opportunity we are given to do, and then <laughs> Let's kill a fatted calf and have a party. <laughs> no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo to watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Thank you. <laughs>